Here, one of the classics, I would say, and that's one of the reasons that we you know, decided to include uh, one of the Hausmann projects in, in the book. It seems like something which was quite logical to do. Um, and, and we see here one of the, you know, the, the whole logic of the Hausmann interventions. Today, I believe, for architects, if I think back about my training at, at uni in, in university, Hausmann was mainly known for the prescriptions of facade design, right? So the, the fact that the city was trying to achieve a certain aesthetics, uh, a certain architectural homogeneity in, in, in giving facade prescriptions which were very severe. Actually, those facade prescriptions over time were actually becoming a little bit uh, loosened because very quickly after the first buildings were built, not necessarily this one, but elsewhere, um, the, the population and, and many important people um, were actually starting to be very critical about this exaggerated idea of repetition. And uh, so at the beginning you were actually forced to, you know, to align completely to the balconies over you know, the whole length of a street and with time, you know, going towards the end of the 19th century, actually this rule was given up because it just seemed to produce kind of funny, funny results. Um, so to go back to Haussmann himself, uh, he was in charge as kind of the planning director of Napoleon III in Paris from 1853 to 1870. At the end of the day, he had to leave because of the enormous debt that had been accumulated and the fact that the public started to find out about this debt. It was, everything was very, very well hidden. However, you know, this is linked to Saint Simonian principles. You know, the idea was here actually that the city would indebt itself or the state, but that you know, the, the overall outcome uh, would be uh, financially and economically positive. So I think that's still a way how we work today, right? Even, I mean, most urban design, most urban development projects tend to be uh, not to make money at the very beginning, or at least not for everybody, not for the city. But the city obviously hopes to uh, raise the tax income. I think at the end of the day, that's what it is about. And this project here was uh, actually implemented after the 1870s, so after Haussmann left, but it follows very much his rules. The reason that it took so long to, impl to be implemented, even though it was on the early list of projects, is that it was realized that the connection of the Louvre with Gare Saint-Lazare, the direct connection, was something which could not be implemented. It would have cost too much money or there were some monuments in the way. So the project became slightly less interesting and didn't have the priority compared to projects like Bouvard Saint-Michel, you know, which was the major east-west extension of the city and of critical importance. So this was slightly pushed back. It was linked also to the construction of a new opera building, which I guess you all know, the Opera Garnier. And so the idea was at the end of the day to link those two interventions, like trying to link somehow the roof, uh, the, the Louvre with the area of Gare Saint-Lazare, um, which, uh, and you can see here actually an early project which uh, tried to do something else. So today actually uh, Avenue de l'Opéra would be somewhere here. And there was a project to do it uh, perpendicular to the roof. Louvre, so it has not been implemented. You can see here a cadastral map. I mean, it's not very clear, but you get the picture. You understand that all these projects obviously were about breakthroughs. Right? Breaking through 
the uh, medieval structure of Paris, which was considered, you know, not to be viable for a modern city, which was meant uh, to, you know, to, to just not work with all the new flows that were, you know, which had to be uh, directed through, through the, you know, the city of, of the end of the 19th century. And, and you see the enormous effort that those works took. And uh, the, the city always tried as much as possible to give the work, again, coming back to Stuyvesant Town, the city, city would have loved to give the work over to a private developer, but those private developers only in very few cases, in, very, in much easier urban circumstances, were actually able to accept this burden because, you know, expropriating the owners, tearing down the buildings and rebuilding everything was just something which for a private developer was not viable enough. So it's again a story of how do you change expropriation laws? So many of the things which have been implemented in Haussmann Paris actually were projects which had been existing sometimes for hundreds of years earlier. It's just that the city did not know how to implement them financially. And this was because of expropriation laws. So the city actually had to, first of all, to lower the price of expropriation. And afterwards what it also did is gave the opportunity to expropriate plots which were not positioned directly on the street line. That again was somehow necessary in order to be able to create something which made sense. And previously the city was not able to do that or only as a price which was uh, horrendous. So again the, 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 the possibilities of Haussmann Paris are very much linked to, to legal questions, not, not only financial ones. You see here one of the famous maps from the 1870s, you know, all the interventions going on at the same time or more or less at the same time. You see those early uh, photographs here which are quite fascinating, really showing how we start to cut through an existing uh, a structure. And here again the diagrams that Katharina did I think are quite telling, showing the existing structure. Obviously everything was in private ownership Probably not everything, but you know that, that was the logic. There's a certain type uh, idea of simplification, obviously, in, in those diagrams here. Then afterwards, it was you know it became ownership, private ownership for a certain amount of time. You know the the city was redesigning the plots and the blocks, and then afterwards it was actually resold, but in a piecemeal way. So obviously not everything was sold to one single developer, uh, but mainly plot by plot. There are some exceptions, the Pereira brothers that you might have heard of, there's a metro station called Pereira. There were some of the largest investors, actually they started their fortune with trains and then afterwards also invested their money actually in banks which mainly actually were um, financing those deals and afterwards also developed some of the plots themselves. So I think here for example this block here would be, in, would be developed in single uh, large scale ownership but that's rather the the uh, exception to the rule. And here it's quite fascinating so you know to walk through Paris and to see those cuts right between you know those buildings here usually probably they would have torn it down but I guess because it's a bank probably the owner was quite quite wealthy or maybe it was just for architectural pity that they decided to keep this building here and to have this quite awkward cut between Avenue de l'Opéra and one of the perpendiculars and you can see that all around so you see sometimes it takes um, a second look to um, understand 
you know, the fact that here again, that's a typical Haussmann building, and here you have an older one, which would be rather 18th century or early 19th century, uh, actually not that strong in, uh, in architectural periods, but, but you can see here the cut between a new building and an older one. Um, again, uh, interesting is the flexibility of the architecture and the urban design. So those buildings have mainly been built as apartments, quite posh apartments at that time. Again, there's, there's an idea of urban renewal in a good and in a bad sense because the area where uh, Avenue de l'Opéra was built through was also considered to be of low values, partly a slum. So one motivation is obviously to rebuild it was also to, you know, to have uh, um, a population with higher income uh, in, in those central locations rather than, than a slum. So these were it's initially mainly built as, as residences, as apartments, but today because of the central area and because I think a certain urban dynamic actually Avenue de l'Opéra, and you can see that quite quickly if you look at the windows, are actually used for smaller offices, sometimes even larger ones if they have been assembled. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility. Transport issues are obviously hardly existing in the center of Paris, so there wasn't so much to do. And here, um, that's one of the plates of a book done by César Dali. Very interesting because he's actually um, gathering those floor plans which have been implemented in order to um, almost published something like a floor plan atlas. Actually, you might know this book by Birkhäuser from I think Schneider is the author, which, which I, I, I loved and uh, was just, you know, gathering at the same scale uh, um, different types of, of floor plans. So here, it's an early example of somebody doing that for the Haussmann period. And I find it kind of uh, complex and ironic how the Haussmann typology, because I think you can mention something like a Haussmann typology at the end of the day, is, a, is an architectural typology in, in terms of configuration, but because of the way you know, those plots have been built, there can't be a repetition of the building form. So the architects were just trying to implement the famous enfilade you know, of master rooms along the, 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 the windows, but they each time had to find you know, solutions for a different shape of leftover plots. That's quite interesting. And César Dali uh, was actually trying to help those architects in gathering those different floor plans with the different shapes of, of, of buildings. Um, okay, let's quickly jump further. Safati Park, um, you know, there, there are different um, um, things which are going to have an impact on the build results. And I think you quite quickly understands that there won't be any kind of causal relationship. What we are trying to work on is the relationship between process and the built result, but it would be very naive to believe that, you know, starting from, you know, having a starting uh, position, starting uh, um, uh, point and a certain uh, uh, process type that you would be able to know what's going to be the built result. So it's not that easy. Uh, but one of the different and uh, interesting points here, and I think it's quite different from what we have seen before, is the importance of the geography, the existing geography of a piece of land before it's being redeveloped. And, and that's what, you know, the, the it's, uh, Safati Park is actually one piece of the pipe. It's in now central uh, Amsterdam, but at that time in the kind of mid-19th century, it was outside of, you know, the, the, the city walls, and the city was considering how it would you know, plan the development of the city towards the, the suburbs. And there, there were some competitions 
And um, you have here uh, a plan which is um, Niftrick, yeah, yeah, I almost forgot the plan. It's a plan by Niftrick which, you know, is trying to um, give an idea of how those suburbs of central Amsterdam could be developed over time. And you can, you know, it's, you can see it only in quite small here, but you, you get a certain idea that there, there are notions here of a grand design. Essentially, he's trying not to follow the development logic that you can find here around the Grachten in central Amsterdam. He's trying to do something very different, which sometimes looks a little bit like you know, the, the, the Castro's plan for Madrid, or which might you know, even sometimes look a little bit like you know, the, the, the boulevards of, of Hausmann. So there's a mixture of different design elements here, but essentially we are completely negating the existing way of development before that time in Amsterdam, and we are also negating the existing structure of agricultural subdivision. So this area was mainly still agricultural. So what you see, those lines are ownership lines, but they are also actually water lines. So what you have very often in the Netherlands, but also in other countries, you know, which have this very high water, you know, being uh, situated right next to the sea, is actually that you have the, the, the water being used for, uh, for the agriculture. Um, and also, obviously, the water taking out of the earth in order to, to drain it, drainage channels, essentially. And um, this early proposal of Van Niftrick was completely going against this, this, this notion. This, it was a tabula rasa master plan, which was not even looking at, at this reality. Now, the fact is, the, the, the Netherlands, a bit like, you know, the, like, 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 like Britain, at least compared to or in this case I would rather say England, compared to France, always had a very liberal uh, um, economic structure and very developer-friendly. So um, the city fathers, and you know, often very much influenced by, by developers, they, they didn't see the interest actually of implementing an urban plan which would be so complicated you know, to, to implement, also in terms of ownership change. And that's where, at the end of the day, the city preferred to go for a counter-proposal done by a city engineer, I think he was, called Van Kalf, who was actually, as you see here, staying much closer to this kind of, of geometry, which was just based on the existing condition. And you can see here, you know, how obviously the ownership over time became much smaller scale, but essentially you have a logic where the developers tried, or the city tried to build the cities on uh, the, the streets on where the water previously was. So you were trying to minimize the conflict of ownership change, right? And so it's an extremely pragmatic approach. And again, uh, some of you might know about the Berlage developments of the pipe. They're situated just slightly further south um, of this development, and they were a direct um, answer to the criticism of the extreme pragmatism of the development of Safati Park. Because of th there were two problems with this development logic. First of all, there was a criticism in terms of urban design, that exactly the rules that I was trying to explain were considered for a grand city to be slightly too pragmatic, slightly too simple. And the second problem was also the small-scale and private 
uh, development logic, essentially uh, Amsterdam at that time was, uh, was lacking millions of, uh, um, um, of affordable housing units and um, the development here was not able to accommodate those people. What happened is actually that most of the houses, you can see here the plants and sections of a typical of these row houses, which really coming out, there was a development, but they are completely coming out of the development logic of the, uh, you know, of the Dutch row house. Those houses were usually often bought by widows, actually. Not all of them, obviously, but it happened often as, a, as an investment for their retirement. So the, the widow might have the, the lower two levels, and the upper levels were actually uh, rented out to, um, to whoever wanted to rent them. But what happened is that they were actually rented out um, by rooms, and sometimes even by alcoves. So, you know, all the hygienic ideas that the city had initially regarding the development of the suburbs of Amsterdam here were quite uh, negated and that's when they actually came back um, with um, a much stronger implication in social housing. So just, you know, maybe 20, 30 years later when Berlage was meant to implement a new plan uh, for social housing units. And this plan actually was implemented very much in a large-scale manner. So by built by housing associations with a much stronger uh, uh, control by the public uh, uh, sector. So that's somehow, Safati Park is some kind of a time, how do you say, it's like the private small-scale logic had gained time maybe 30 years before then eventually Amsterdam decided to jump into uh, social housing as uh, you know, many other countries did at the same time. So it's, it's an interesting turning point here. Um, and that's, by the way, that's one of the images taken from the first book where actually the typology of those houses is one example. So you can see here the, la the, the architectural result of the large-scale approach compared you know, to this very you know, traditional-looking small-scale row house logic of, of Saparty Park. I hope that was more or less clear. Uh, transport, uh, it's difficult to explain on this in short time. That's why I recommend to buy the book because, <laughs> because I, I hope I'm, I'm much clearer in the book uh, than I'm, I'm, I'm probably here. Um, transport, I do believe, is probably today makes up about three quarter of what you could call urbanism. And um, Uralil is a very good and early, let's say, early contemporary example of that logic. So master plant by OMA, uh, Rem Kohlhaas. I think probably of, of many of you will have heard about it. Uh, what I find really interesting is um, how urban planning relates to the economy of a city. I believe if you're in a place like Paris or London, that's where I have most of my experience from, in cities which have been rich for a very long time, Sometimes you're always only thinking about further growth because the economical base is already there. So you don't really think about how urban development and the actual economy of a city are linked together and you know, how they influence each other. If you take here Lille, Lille was a city uh, which at that time of the project was already in fairly bad economic conditions, right? It was a rich city um, in, you know, up to the mid-19th century, probably something like that, maybe even a bit longer. I think through textile industries, partly steel, I'm not even sure of that, but, you know, industries which tended to all over Western Europe uh, and Eastern Europe just to, to, to go down and down in terms of, 
um, of, 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 of wealth produced for the city. So Lille was a city with high unemployment and here the signature of the contract for the uh, Eurostar was really the starting point of a project which really you know, is based on some kind of hope which only partly has you know, been implemented in reality but the hope was really and I think Rem Kohlhaas has written a lot of that and probably also when he was chosen as a master planner insisted on that point, I think he was able to make the city fathers dream about these opportunities. You may, might have seen the diagrams where he's showing Lille and you know the enormous uh, new, the enormous amount of this 50 million people that you could now actually reach in just kind of a two hour train ride. So Lille was presented as being a new international hub, while before that it was just essentially a, 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 a mid-sized, if at all, mid-sized city in northern France, slightly depressed northern France. And, and um, so this project was very much taken as an opportunity to, to build up a new quarter, 